Welcome to the Orton Family Foundation's Heart and Soul Talks Conference Call Series. For these talks, we bring in practitioners to share their stories and to focus on key tools and solutions aimed at building better communities. Community Heart and Soul is the Orton Family Foundation's signature community development and planning method that empowers residents to plan their future based on what matters most to them. My name is Fran Stoddard, and today in this hour-long event, we'll hear about cultivating businesses and encouraging entrepreneurs in small towns. Our panelists who have owned businesses, worked with entrepreneurs, and helped make their downtowns vibrant will share secrets of their successful local economies. Our speakers today are Becky McCray. She's a business owner, author, and publisher of Small Biz Survival, a blog devoted to small town economies. Hi, Becky. Hello. I'm excited to be here. Okay, great. We also have Joe Watson. He is a, also a business owner and founder of Macomb, Ohio Economic Development Organization and the project coordinator of Macomb Region Heart and Soul. Welcome, Joe. Well, Fran, thank you for having me. Great to have you. And finally, just a dashing here from another meeting, Patrick White is the Executive Director of Gardner Main Street and the Economic and Community Development Coordinator of Gardner Main. Notice all of these speakers wear several hats. I would think that this would sound familiar to you small town uh, folks out there. Today we have over 180 participants registered. We want to re welcome you all. We've put all of our guests on mute to keep the audio as clean as possible. However, you can interact with all of us on our Google Doc, the shared online document for resources, note-taking, and questions. Click on the link in your email, open that document in your browser, and follow along while Orton's Caitlin Davison takes notes. These notes will be proofed and refined after the call, providing a great resource for you in the future. We encourage you to open the Google Doc now to check it out and review questions that have already been submitted. And you can add your own comments or questions to the document in real time. We'll leave this document up after the call for your continued input and reference. We honor and encourage the wisdom of this crowd. In a few days, we'll send out links to the Google Doc and the podcast to all registrants. If you're having any trouble with the Google Doc during the call, clicking the refresh icon should take care of it. If you're having any technical issues, you can email Caitlin Davison at cdavison at orton.org. But please send your questions or comments for this call via the Google document, not email. Thanks for that. So now on to our guests. Becky McRae is a small town entrepreneur in Woods County, Oklahoma, who owns and runs a small town retail liquor store and cattle ranch with her husband. Becky is the publisher of Small Biz Survival, an influential blog about small businesses and rural issues she started because she believes small town entrepreneurs have a lot to teach each other and will help other towns prosper. And people internationally take a look at this fabulous blog. Becky has spoken internationally at over 100 conferences in, on small business, rural issues, and social media. She's a partner of SaveYour.Town, a consultancy that is creating courses, toolkits, and online communities to learn about simple actions to improve small towns. Becky is also co-author of the award-winning book, Small Town Rules, for businesses of all sizes. So Becky's going to start us off by giving us a high-level view of how small businesses can thrive and help their towns. So um, what innovative models are you seeing emerge in new towns? Becky, go ahead. Okay. Thank you, Fran. I want to tell you about the innovative rural business models. These are things that we're seeing shape up in rural communities, different ways people are approaching going into business. Kind of the traditional way to go into business was to uh, figure out your idea, try to find a location for it, uh, start your business plan, secure some financing, create a, your organization, figure out the form of your business. You were gonna, then you needed to start to work on marketing. You're going to need staff. You're going to need to figure out where you're going to get materials, product to sell. Uh, it, there's a huge, huge barrier between idea and in business in the traditional model. So these new innovative rural business models are ones that tear down the barriers to entry. So we're seeing people do this very creatively, and there are – the first of these is temporary. We see temporary businesses that may just pop up just for a day, maybe for a week, or maybe even a business that's only in there for just maybe the holiday selling season. Start thinking of the booths that are held at your events 
as opportunities to test entrepreneurial ideas. So season-long pop-ups uh, may last all through the holiday season. Delaware did a project pop-up, and they've been doing this for several years, and they have selected 18 businesses over the past four years to participate in their project. Of those, 17 went from that short-term experiment to sign a long-term lease and go into a full-scale business. So the pop-up model gives you a really solid place to test and try out a business idea. So those are temporary businesses. The second kind of innovative business model are tiny businesses. These are little bitty businesses, maybe operating in a shared space or one big building that's divided up. In fact, in Washington, Iowa, there's a wonderful business called The Village. Population of Washington is about 7,000. That building, which used to be a huge old department store with 15,000 square feet, it sat empty for decades because nobody could fill all 15,000 square feet. Now it's been divided up by Kathy Lloyd into a number of much smaller, only a few hundred square feet, little shops that look just like a village built right inside the building. Those businesses, because they're much smaller, give a lot more people the opportunity to try out a business idea who couldn't make the huge leap to filling 15,000 square feet. Another tiny idea are the tiny business villages that we're seeing. There's one in Tianesta, Pennsylvania, which is a population of just 500 people. They took an empty lot and put in garden sheds. And so there are um, eight or ten little garden sheds spread out over an empty lot, and people are making tiny businesses inside of these garden sheds, and they're able to do that when they would never have enough resources or enough assets to rent an entire downtown building to get started. So it's another way of trying out a business on a tiny scale before going bigger. The third of the innovative rural business models is together. How could we work together? So this is things like store inside a store or business inside a business. Homewood, Illinois, they did season-long pop-ups in their downtown during the holiday season, and one of their season-long pop-ups was an empanada maker that popped up inside of a furniture store. So they didn't have to have their own location. They didn't have to try to fill a place on their own. They got to borrow the assets of another business. So, And I love the combination of empanadas and a furniture store. Why not? I mean, it just makes you want to have empanadas. Another kind of together is co-working spaces. Gardner, Maine has a great co-working space. Their population, about 7,000. You'll hear more about Gardner in a minute. Maker spaces, of course, are a great way of sharing assets among each other. Shared art studios are also very popular, and galleries. There's a wonderful space called the Artesian Galleries and Studios in Sulphur, Oklahoma, which has a population of under 5,000. And then even like commercial kitchens that are shared. There's a little tiny town of Tacoma, Oklahoma, population 107, and they took an old commercial kitchen that was in a school building that was no longer being used. When the school closed, they made that commercial kitchen into a shared asset. And there's a wonderful company that started there by making pickles with just their family members, and it was served as a business incubator for them. So that's borrowing and sharing assets among the title of together. The fourth of the innovative rural business models are trucks and trailers. So these can be anything. I mean, you're used to seeing barbecue or taco or all kinds of food out of trucks and trailers, but it has expanded far beyond just something to eat. We see mobile businesses that are using more than one town to gather up enough customers to make it work for them. So we're seeing a lot of retail and boutiques that operate specifically from a truck or trailer. There's a financial planner. There's a wedding consultant. You name the business, somebody's doing it out of a truck or trailer. Um, I was in Cosmos, Minnesota, which is a population of about 500 people, and they were having their space festival, and they had a trailer there to play laser tag. So you know that that business doesn't exist only to play laser tag just in the town of 500. They're using lots of little towns to be enough market to make it worth their while and make it a profitable business. And the last, fifth and last of the innovative rural business model has to do with ownership. We are seeing community ownership, 
cooperative ownership, employee ownership, all kinds of ways of spreading out the ownership and risk so that one person doesn't have to be the sole ownership point of a new business. In Cody, Nebraska, which is a population of 154, they have a community-owned and student-run grocery store. The students, in fact, built the building, and now they continue to run that grocery store to this very day. So we're seeing all of these innovative models that serve as a way to tear down the barriers to entry, make it a lot easier to test, to try an idea, to experiment and learn from it, to build up your assets, to start building a market long before you ever make the big leap to going into a traditional form of business. Wow. Well, Becky, I think you, you already answered a lot of questions, great examples, great types of businesses and spaces, and thank you so much. Terrific. Thank you. Um, okay. Uh, now we'll move on to uh, Joe Wasson, who is doing some of this in his town. He was born and raised in Macomb, Ohio, where he continues to make his home with his wife and three boys. He owned and managed Bennett's Furniture Town Store for 20 years until it closed in 2013. Soon after, he formed the Macomb Economic Development Organization that started an annual business expo and won a grant from the Finley-Hancock County Foundation to conduct a community heart and soul effort that he now leads as the Macomb Region Heart and Soul Coordinator. Joe's community-minded fever has also led him to serve on a number of boards over the years, including the County Chamber of Commerce and the Home Builders Association. He is currently president of the Macomb Rotary Club. Joe, thanks so much for joining us and sharing Macomb's story with us today. Go ahead. Well, thank you, Fran. Um, yeah, as you had uh, mentioned, uh, we're from Ohio, uh, a small village um, about 50 miles south of Toledo. Um, we have a population of about 1,700 there. Um, it's like most small towns in America. You know, we have two street lights. Uh, at the time, back in the day, we had a couple hardware stores. We had three grocery stores, pharmacy, the bakeries, restaurants, and, of course, uh you know, there's a furniture store. Um, and as the big box stores started to come in in the 70s and 80s, the mom and pop stores slowly disappeared. Um, and as those disappeared, the local furniture store started to buy up uh, these buildings one by one. Um, the furniture store owned um, about 16 buildings, uh, which my family purchased in the mid-90s. And then due to the economy and competition, in July of 2013, uh, we really had to make the tough decision that we had to close this business. And uh, this left a huge hole in our downtown with 16 empty buildings, uh, which was all of our downtown. Uh, There's only a few other things uh, uh, currently there. In January of 2014, um, myself, along with some other passionate people from our community, uh, we started the Macomb Economic Development Organization. And that we received a small grant from them to get that started from the Finley-Hancock County Community Foundation. Uh, so we started to do some strategic planning. Um, we did our SWOT analysis to learn what our strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats were. Then in uh, November of 14, we applied for a grant through the Community Foundation called Community Heart and Soul. It was a very competitive grant. Um, several communities were all vying for the same grant in our county, and we were very fortunate to, uh, to win that grant. And through the Heart and Soul process, we really found out who lives in our community and what our assets are. And, and we did this through uh, the CNA, which was the Community Network Analysis, and discovered that there were programs and businesses that we didn't even know existed. You know, and I was born and raised here my whole life, and I couldn't hardly imagine that there were things going on here that I didn't know about. Um, one discovery was actually a local excavator. Um, he'd been driving about 20 miles um, every time he needed a new hydraulic hose for his tractor. Um, as, and as we're going through the network analysis, we found out that uh, there was a, a farmer and a mechanic uh, less than a mile from his house that made these. Uh, 
so he was just uh, a newfound uh, business just down down the road that uh, he could get his hose right there. Um, didn't have to drive 20 miles to get them replaced. Uh, but with Heart and Soul, we had held events and talked to people of all ages to really find out what mattered most to the people that live in our community. Through these findings, we found out what our core values were. And then once we found out what our values were, now we're in the process of looking, how do we keep these values, and then how do we enhance these to make them even better? Through the heart and soul, there's been a new sense of pride that we can see in our communities. Um, and it's how people are taking care of their yards. It's the ways we get now as you're walking down the street, people are waving at you, and the, the residents are actually engaged in conversations, you know, whether they're at the post office or the bank, uh, the grocery store. You just see so much more interaction. Um, since we have started the heart and soul process, we've had seven new businesses opened up. Um, and we are now currently in the uh, phase of creating an action plan as part of the heart and soul process. Um, it's still a work in progress. Um, it's very encouraging. It's a very good sign that things, things are getting better and, and uh, the future is looking bright here in Macomb. Awesome, Joe. That is very encouraging. One, it's a it's a fabulous story, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to what has happened in your town. And it, hopefully, it gives them um, some real encouragement that things are going so well in your town. Thanks so much. Our our final speaker before we we get into a, a lively Q and A is Patrick Wright. He has been the executive director of the Gardner Main Street program in Gardner, Maine, since. 2011. Patrick also serves as the Economic Development Coordinator for the City of Gardner. Originally from Virginia, he spent several summers in Maine as a camper and counselor, which helped form his love of community and the state of Maine. Patrick has held positions in community planning and economic development at the state, local, and regional level prior to moving into the nonprofit sector. He's been instrumental in revitalization of Gardner's downtown, which has included partnering with the town's Community Heart and Soul Project and the Gardner Growth Initiative and Incentive Program for New Businesses. Patrick lives in Woolwich. Is that how you pronounce that? You got it. All right. <laughs> Woolwich, Maine, with his family, where in addition to children, he raises hogs and chickens on a semi-pro basis, and I believe makes a pretty mean sausage. Thank you for joining us, Patrick. Why don't you tell us about Gardner? Thanks so much, Fran. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the nice introduction. Um, so Gardner did the uh, was one of the pilot programs for the Heart and Soul program back in 2012, and I think the um, uh, you've heard a little bit, and everyone has researched, I'm sure, uh, the Heart and Soul program, which um, you know to, to me I explained it in a couple ways uh, to, to folks, and it certainly has built community in ways uh, in Gardner that I didn't expect it to, but you know it's also uh, a ton of hard work to uh, pull out of people uh, their, what's most important to them, what their values are, and I sort of I, I sort of give the example that uh, the way that you know that it's working is uh, sort of the what I call the Listerine effect. So the the burn that you feel just like when you use Listerine is really how you know that that's that's working, and so um, it is hard work. Um, it is, uh, but the, the payoff is is really important, and has really I've, I've seen a transformation in our community um, as folks have have responded to that exercise in building the muscle of, gosh, getting off our mobile devices and into each other's living rooms and just reconnecting with folks on a different level. And so, I have a lot of folks um, in the economic development world sort of. Um, you know, roll their eyes a little bit because a lot of the folks in the economic development world are are about uh, putting big deals big deals together and um, attracting business and jobs, jobs, jobs. And I think that uh, before um, you uh, can do any sustainable economic development, you need to do that important community development work. And in fact, a lot of the times I say that community development is economic development. Um, and so uh, one of the specific programs that 
I'd like to highlight with folks because uh, I think the topic of this this discussion and, and there's some helpful takeaways um, when you have something that you can act on. And I, I will say that um, I'm, I'm happy to share this uh, information with anyone on the call who's, who's interested um, in case you'd like to replicate a program of your own. Um, this was, uh, we were really fortunate in Gardner because we had a local bank who had the headquarters here who um, had a charitable foundation and, and they recognized the importance of uh, building a sustainable uh, mix of businesses all in sort of one fell swoop. So one of the things that happened in Gardner for the last 20 years that has happened in many downtown communities is that you have um, you have have uh, low property values and so you create this sort of vicious um, cycle and, and low rent so you create this vicious cycle of businesses um, and uh, that maybe aren't ready to be under into business maybe they're undercapitalized maybe they um, aren't um, uh, they they just have an idea and and they're gonna gonna charge forward and they can afford to do that because the rents are so low. Um, and then after two or three years, they realize this wasn't part of the lifestyle that they signed on for. Or they run out of cash, um, and then you know all of a sudden your entire downtown district uh, becomes stigmatized because no business can survive there. So um, we feel like it's really important and we want to encourage that entrepreneurship and that's an equally important component of downtown redevelopment. But we also know that, especially in this sort of retail environment, which is increasingly under uh, challenge, not only from the big box stores, but uh, online retail, um, so on and so forth, that we really needed to create an environment of businesses within a very short um, time frame that would build on each other. And so we did that, that first by doing what's called a retail leakage study. And all of you, there's some great resources on the University of Wisconsin uh, capital, um, I'm sorry, um, the extension program um, with the University of Washington on how to do your own retail leakage study. So uh, we did a little bit of work to determine what we thought would be um, the best types of businesses that we'd like to attract there. And then we were able to capitalize a fund, and this started back in 2014. We capitalized a fund um, through the support of this bank who is, is headquartered in Gardner um, to uh, attract businesses that met um, our retail leakage study that we felt would be a really good match for our community and, um, and then importantly that had success elsewhere. And we wanted to encourage not poaching businesses, not moving businesses, but rather business expansion, which is good for the entire state. And so we were the, the other piece that we recognized and when we were really intentional about the type of business that we wanted to attract to our community was a business that um, had been successful elsewhere, so successful, in fact, to the point that they were looking to expand. So that was a really uh, important uh, piece in our um, in, in sort of our application process that we really um, felt strongly about, and so we have um, we have we've brought in three businesses through that program so far. Um, the program is a forgivable loan program. So what forgivable loan means is that um, their deals are available up to fifty thousand dollars, and presuming they're in business after five years, all of the principal and accrued interest is. Um, completely forgiven. So there is a hook to make sure that these businesses that have had success elsewhere not only move to our community, but uh, they're there for five years. So I'm happy to say that um, two years into the program, all three of those businesses are still um, are still in business. They're still doing strong, and in fact, um, because of their presence, um, several other businesses have chosen to move to our our small downtown. Hmm. Fabulous, Patrick. And I, you, you might have mentioned this, and I might have missed it. What is the size of Gardner again? Uh, thank you. Uh, the, the Gardner is just under six thousand in population. Okay. Uh, we so are we, we are eight miles from the um, capital city of Augusta, so our labor market area is about sixty thousand. Okay, great. Thanks. That kind of puts it in context because I think. Uh, and Becky in Oklahoma is from a much smaller place, so we have a nice we have a nice range here. Um, 
So we, let's get on to our uh, Q&A. Also, you'll know, Patrick mentioned a, a resource. We'll make sure that that resource, if it's not already up on our Google document, that it will be there. Uh, there will be lots of resources at the bottom of the document, so you can check there uh, at the end of this call. So let's get on to the questions. Katie from uh, North Dakota has asked, can you touch on creative funding for projects or events and or how to get more folks involved or reinvolved in a community that has turned off its population from wanting to be a participant. Now there are a lot of questions around this about so there and there are two kind of two questions here. There's the creative funding for projects and also just getting people involved. Um, and she even says uh, maybe they don't even know they've turned folks off and are wondering why nobody wants to be a part. Um, also, we have somebody from Oregon who's, who's interested in also how to get people more involved, volunteers, more people um, involved in the community who are um, from an older population over 50. Uh, Becky, do you want to take a stab at that? I will be glad to. My answer on getting more people involved is always about breaking down what you want them to do into small, meaningful steps. Because uh, if you follow the the fog behavioral model, when motivation is low, then you need to break it down into smaller steps so that they are better able to accomplish what you want them to do. So when you have a bunch of people who aren't motivated, you need to give them a smaller thing to do. But it always has to be meaningful. It always has to be meaningful. Right now, when you want to volunteer, we kind of expect you to give up your life to be a volunteer. We want you to be on the board for a three-year term. We want you to come to meetings every single month, and they always run long, and they're two hours long, and they're running longer than that. And it's absolutely a huge hurdle. So a little bit like, you know, we talked about the innovative rural business models, breaking those down, pulling down the barriers to entry. How can you pull down the barriers to entry for people to be involved in your project? Is there not a smaller but still meaningful way people can get involved. And that's going to make it a lot easier. And then that ties to people with lower motivation to make it more possible. Um, and when you attract more folks like that, um, that gives you a better pool for your fundraising. So I'll, I'll leave it at that for the creative fundraising answer. Okay. That's, that's terrific advice. Uh, the, the next question uh, is, is kind of interesting. There's a con contaminated site in New Hampshire. EPA grant-funded cleanup town wants to replace a general store and gas station. Then, Dash, she needs a help finding a developer. Patrick, I'm going to throw this one at you. Just how do you begin finding a developer to attract them to your town? Maybe not to do, you know, a huge thing, but but something small. How do you how do you attract those folks? Well, I'll give you a specific advance of a a, um, a, a specific program that we did here in, in Gardner through the um, Brownfields assessment program. So we, we had EPA um, funds to assess properties. We actually um, had a property that the city owns because of a tax foreclosure. Um, and the, the key to cleanup, and there's EPA Brownfields cleanup funds too, is to have, um, just as the, as the caller asked, to have a um, a developer on board, they you can clean up these sites, but they want to see a redevelopment plan. That's the that's the whole cornerstone of this type of project. They want to know that they're not just going to clean up the site and have it be uh, empty. And so, a critical piece of that is having a developer on board. And if you put yourself in the um, eyes of a developer, the shoes of a the developer, um, they're in it. Um, many are community motivated, but all of them are in it to make money, and so they need to be assured that um, you have a concept and, uh, frankly, a tenant for them. And once you have a tenant, that will drive developers showing interest in a property. And so uh, for our particular uh, property, what we did is we had uh, – we spoke with the local hospital. We knew that their, they were not happy with their existing um, primary care site that was sort of in a residential neighborhood, and we approached them uh, with this particular blighted site, which has a lot more visibility we thought might be good for them. Um, developers love hospitals because they sign long-term leases, um, and, um, and, and that actually drove. So we were able to attract the developer because of that. We put out a re request for... Uh, qualifications based on having uh, this tenant on board and actually we said in that request for qualifications and if you have any other ideas for the rest of this site because the hospital couldn't use the entire site 
um, that will strengthen your uh, your uh, our our we will we'll favor you uh, for, for who gets the project. And so um, they actually now have uh, plans uh, approved for not only the medical care facility but also um, uh, two housing developments. One is an affordable workforce, and the other is an affordable senior housing project on that site. So it's quite a transformation, oh. and I, I think really the key is um, can, ha, ha, has your community done the work to first vision what they'd like to see at that site, and then secondly, um, can you do some legwork to find, even if it's not uh, the developer, um, to find the tenant first. That will really drive your success. Fabulous, Patrick. Thank you. Uh, the, the next question has to do with social media, uh, and it's from Robert in Vermont. He says, has anyone studied the relationship between social media reach and actual sales figures for a brick-and-mortar business? And I think, Becky, you might have, or someone put some resources there already. I'd like Becky to speak to it since she does so much social media. And, and Joe, I want you to be thinking about how actually I think in your town uh, that you used a lot of Facebook to, to reach out. But, Becky, why don't you go ahead with uh, – your um, your answer to this relationship between social media and sales figures and or success of small business. Right. Uh, you've tried to broaden the question a little bit, which is really good, because reach is not a great metric to measure because reach is easily manipulated. I can go out and buy followers or buy likes all day long. That doesn't mean they're the right people. So especially in a small town, it's much more important to have the right people that you are connected with than just to have a lot of people. So the way this question is phrased, it sounds like should there be a direct relationship between reach and sales? Um, I think the better question is just to say, what's the return on investment? What's the return on investment for how much you invested in this in time and money and what you got back out of it? And that's a tracking question. And I'll say this. I've been on Twitter for 10 years now. I've been involved with social media for at least that long. Um, I've spoken at South by Southwest twice. Social media is not a new question for me. And so I just want to point out I've left a couple of links in the document. One is from eConsultancy, and it's a long list from 2013. Um, of just an epic list, they say, of social media case studies and statistics and blog posts, infographics, all kinds of stuff. And another is a free resource at Marketing Profs. You do need to sign up for free at Marketing Profs to view it, but they have an entire section dedicated just to metrics and return on investment. We are way past 10 years into the social media question, and so if you are, if you need proof, the proof is out there. But if you are holding out and you're using the lack of proof as a reason to hold out, you're just going to continue to hold out. Um, there are some people who will never like social media, and giving them studies will not change their mind. <laughs> Very good advice. And I don't know, Joe, if you want to address, I, I think that in your town, uh, I remember somebody saying how powerful Facebook was to really reach out to people. Has, has that been a good um, medium for you and Macomb? Yeah, for us, Fran, uh, we, we have found out, and we've tried uh, several different avenues, um, but Facebook by far, uh, we had so much more interaction with the people that lived here, you know, so we knew who we were talking to, um, but they would feel free to uh, respond, comment, um, on what was going on. Um, it was It was a great way to get the message out. Uh, where we were going to be, you know, what events w were happening. Um, it was more of an information tool than it was us getting comments back and so forth. But it kept everybody informed of uh, what was happening in our community um, so they could uh, enjoy in those activities. And also, uh, when we wrote our blog post and different things like that, we would always release those out that way as well. Um, you know, for our community to uh, get engaged. Terrific. And and I know that Patrick does a great newsletter also in Gardner that, that uh, is, is very engaging. The, the next question, I'm going to actually co combine this uh, with another one. Uh, Deborah is interested in how is it best to get these new ideas across to municipal employees, such as a development director. Um, but also John talks about, uh, from Oregon, 
how do you see the appropriate role of local government and economic development as opposed to non-governmental groups like the chamber and local development organizations? So, you know, kind of how do you bring in municipal employees and municipal people and also balance that with um, the, the non-profit business organizations? Uh, Patrick, do you, I, I think you, you, you are both in government and out of government, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to see just, how do you how do you get these new ideas get people to to do some of these very entrepreneurial ideas both in government and or even a chamber that might also be somewhat conservative sure i think that's a, a great question um i think the first piece of advice that i'd go to is if you haven't done it already don't make assumptions about people and have a cup of coffee with them you'd be surprised on how many stories i hear where folks make assumptions that um so-and-so in city government just wouldn't be open to it, and then um, you ask if they've actually sat down and had that conversation with them, um, the answer is no. But uh, it, you, I understand there are some tough nuts out there who have been doing it for a long time and, and may be set in their ways, and I think one of the things that um, you can do is present some, some evidence, and so I'm, I'm going to give up one of my colleagues who is Daniel Stevens in Biddeford, Maine, who is um, – an incredible economic development person who really gets the art of storytelling, and he tells the story about the trash incinerator that was um, in the middle of their downtown that was um, strangling their economic development, and um, through the heart and soul process and community development and discussion, um, this the city decided to take it down, and uh, and and it's led to an incredible amount of of mill redevelopment and redevelopment throughout their downtown, and he points often to um, get how important it is to get um, get community members on the same page because there's nothing more frustrating or worse when someone, particularly in economic development, is working to bring a business to town and then the community um, brings their pitchforks to the public meeting and decides that it's not a business that they want. So by uh, being proactive, determining what the community wants first, it goes a lot further. So, um, again, uh, Daniel Stevens in Biddeford, Maine, uh, who mm -hmm. went through the heart and soul process, um, would be a great resource um, for anyone to contact who's, who's out there in the economic development field. Great. Thank you, Patrick. The next question comes in from Len from Connecticut, and he asks, how would you suggest to bring together an ethnically divided small-town community? Now, we want to kind of keep this um, potentially in an, an economic development uh, framework, uh, but Joe, uh, you said that you, you'd be interested in, in tackling this question. What are, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, Fran, um, we were in a little unique situation here, um, and what really, really worked for us uh, was, number one, was uh, building a relationship. Uh, we we had a very large um, Hispanic Latino population, and um, number one was we built a relationship, you know, with a few people in that group. Um, a lot of them lived in the same neighborhood, you know, it was a whole neighborhood. Uh, we went around and um, we actually um, stuck flyers on their doors, let them know we were going to be coming. And uh, we went to their neighborhood uh, armed with our grill and uh, plenty of food. And uh, we had a bounce house uh, for the kids to play in. And we just went there with open arms and went and listened to their stories. Uh, we did have an interpreter with us, um, some of them that may not have uh, spoke English. Uh, which we did need, um, but we, we listened to their stories, and Fran, they were so passionate um, about the community um, as we were. Um, mm -hmm. They they were just, they weren't involved, um, but the, the end result in all this really turned out is not only did we have hamburgers and hot dogs, and I think we had some watermelon, and we had a, it was a blast. It was in the summertime. Our volunteers all went. But the following weekend, they all invited us to the park to enjoy their cuisine. And we ate, um, you know, we had a whole, um, 
Mexican um, food all laid out for all of us to come and enjoy. And we just built relationships with these people, and uh, it, it just turned out fabulous. You know, now they're the first ones that, you know, they're the ones that are waving down the street and saying hi to you. And um, before, there was just no connection. I mean, it was complete. Um, there was nothing there at all. And now we've uh, kind of built that little bridge. Um, you know, it, it was a small little step, but... Um, now they're jumping on some of the committees and they're helping out. Um, one of them just catered one of our last events. Um, so yeah, it, it's been uh, that's how it's worked for us. Well, and and uh, if you're lucky, you might have a decent Mexican restaurant <laughs> coming coming to your town sometime soon. Um, it sounds like the, the catering's already happening, so that's that's a great story. I'm uh, I'm going to skip down to uh, co-working spaces. Uh, Greg from Vermont uh, asks, please talk about ways a co-working space can be central to the development of an entrepreneurial co-ecosystem and culture. What supports can a municipality provide to encourage innovation and business startups? And he's um, asking you to be specific. I think, Patrick, you work in a co-working space, I believe. We sure do. Can you speak to that? Go ahead. Sure, um, and I would be happy to work with any um, any main streets out there or other groups who are considering um, starting a co-working space. And in fact, the state of Maine just um, passed a, a, a bill that provides um, some funding for um, for developing co-working spaces. And the reason why they work, just briefly, is that you know it used to be that the old economic devel- development model was. Um, you know, people would move to a, an area uh, where the job was, and they'd stay in that job for 30 years, and they retire there. Um, that's not happening anymore. The new commodity is talent, and so um, folks are increasingly mobile. They can increasingly work from anywhere, but they don't necessarily want to work out of their home. And so, by creating a space where you share some of the overhead, um, you also see with particularly with, with millennials. Um, I'm impressed with. Uh, with some of the folks who come to our co-working space, they don't mind that there's six other people around the table. They'll um, put in their earbuds and, and be as happy as, as they can be. So we create a, um, a space where people can, can work, they can share creative ideas. It's part of um, the agreement that folks share with membership is that we're interested in keeping an open mind, being open to each other, but also being respectful of each other's space um, so we have pr- um, four private offices and then um, common desk areas and a shared uh, conference space, share a, 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 a professional printer. Um, we have uh, shared restrooms and shower and that sort of thing. So it's really a, a great model, and I, I know that Becky has done some work around co-working spaces too. Yeah, that de- department store, uh, among others, uh, having several businesses in one in one place. And so, Becky, I, I'd like you to add to that question, and and maybe even sneak into the uh, the next question or two down um, that uh, Frank from Virginia brought in. We're struggling with the economics of new construction in small town centers because lease rates um, need to be low, but new construction costs are high. It seems that Frank doesn't have the benefit of large inventory of old buildings that can be repurposed. So, um, Becky, back to you about, you know, your experience with co-working spaces and maybe things that have to be built or um, – because I think you had some ideas as as well there if there aren't that many buildings that can be repurposed. Okay. I'm going to – do it in two pieces, but we're gonna, you're gonna hear a theme, which is I'm gonna go back to my idea-friendly framework. And there's three pieces. There's take small steps, build your connections, and gather your crowd. So for Greg, specifically asking about co-working, and he said something very key. He said, what supports can a municipality provide specifically? Mm-hmm. He, and so mm-hmm. I'm gonna hammer on those three, those things. Here are three things you can do, Greg, as a municipality to provide support to encourage innovation and business startups. Number one, undertake small steps. I want you to cut down barriers to entry. What can you as the municipality do to make it easier for people to get into business when they have to deal with you as the municipality? So how can you cut down the barriers to entry? And you may have to walk through your process in your town to find out um, what those problems are. The second one was to build connections. 
in, in your role as a municipality, you can leverage your network. You can help connect your businesses that are wanting to innovate and create startups with the network that you have outside your community. You know a lot of people that can be resources for those innovative businesses. So that's part of building connections. That third piece was to gather your crowd. And you as a municipality can absolutely plant a flag and be a public discussion point, be an advocate for promoting how open and supportive your town is to new businesses and that you may want to give awards, you may want to send, uh, have your council issue proclamations, you may want to make sure that people get written up in the newspaper, you may want to brag on them in any municipal publication you have, but you're going to gather your crowd, you're going to be a public discussion point for innovation and business startups. So there's three very specific things for Greg. The other side is, all right, so now we're talking about how do we build new buildings, keep lease rates low, and yet have the high cost of building new buildings. And I'm going to flip back to that story of the village in Washington, Iowa. Build one space and divide it up. Instead of expecting one business to start um, and to carry the whole weight, do lots of little tiny businesses inside that shared space. So take small steps in that you're, you know, you're cutting down that barrier to entry. You may want to build some connections. You want to leverage your network. You want to find people that could go in there and could support your businesses so that they'll be more profitable from the very beginning. And then gather your crowd again. You know, you're going to become that planting that flag. You'll become a public discussion point for the fact that we are trying to fill these buildings with lots of experiments and that this is an opportunity for people to become involved in the revitalization effort. And so um, something that Patrick mentioned about Gardner was those low rents downtown kind of let unqualified people try and fail. And because they were in those huge downtown buildings, full-size buildings, it sort of stigmatized their downtown when they failed. So if you could divide that up into smaller spaces, and instead of letting one failure make it into a huge eyesore when they go, if you could promote lots of tiny little experiments and create this whole environment um, where you're promoting innovation and experimentation and startups and you know that they will come and go, then it's less of a problem. If there's a dozen, if one goes out, not as big of a deal because they're just one space and there's a waiting list of people that want to get into it. That was the experience in Tynesta, Pennsylvania with those tiny business villages. They had a waiting list from day one for people mm. to rent a garden shed and rent a business. So those are, uh, those are the two answers to those big questions there. Great. Thank you, Becky, for again for breaking down the questions and and continuing to uh, to, to break things down so we we have them in in bite-sized pieces that we can we can move forward with. Um, I, I also I loved your gather your crowd, and I happen to know that Greg, who wrote that, also had a pitch event, uh, which um, where he gathered and encouraged entrepreneurs to pitch to uh, investors, and so he brought entrepreneurs and investors and some uh, business consultants together so they could think about what kinds of businesses uh, might might be appropriate for their town which is a, which is another pretty cool idea maybe he can get on the google doc and add uh, some some things about a pitch event there okay on to uh, another a question from uh, Wisconsin Becky B asks uh, well, actually, she, she describes first. She says, we have a section of our community that was once a thriving downtown. This is decades ago. This is now an unpleasant mix of falling down businesses, dive bars, empty properties, storage warehouses, and icky rental units. Several of these properties are owned by the same person, someone who has no interest in improvements or economic development. So she has two questions. Do you know of any ordinances that have been used in other communities that could help this situation? And two, how do you go about revitalizing an entire area? She fears that if only one business is opened there, it wouldn't work because of there not being enough of a draw. How do you orchestrate several, like up to three businesses opening all at once at one time? Uh, Patrick, do you want to take a first stab at this one? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to, Fran. Um, uh, gosh, th that the story that she tells is is all too common, and you see it um, across our historic downtowns throughout the entire nation. So 
first thing is to recognize that you're not alone and that, you know, I certainly couldn't in, uh, you know, a brief answer tell you all the things you need to do, but there are, if you're not already a Main Street community, um, there's lots of resources and the model is, um, is, is, you know, is up online. There's lots of information. If you go to um, MainStreet.org, um, I think that's it, or just Google National Main Street uh, Program, and um, and you can see sort of the, the approach that it follows. But basically, um, it, you're absolutely right that uh, business development work alone will not be successful. And I think this is why it's really important to understand the context of that community development work because. If, if nobody cares about a place, then um, it's, you're not going to see transformative change in it. And so that's why I think it's really important, even if you start, and, and this answers another question for, that was asked earlier about how to get people involved, start with the 20% who get it. And um, if you have to build from there, um, don't expect necessarily that you have to have everyone on board. And so if, you know, if, if you're... Um, down, 80% of your downtown is owned by the landlord who doesn't um, seem to be motivated. Start with the 20% that are, um, and maybe they can help that person change their mind. Mm, great. Uh, Joe or Becky, anything you want to add about how to bring back a, a troubled part of town? Well, uh, Fran, um, a couple things we've done here um, is we started out the rents very, very low just to get somebody in the buildings. Um, mm. And sometimes it's almost rent-free. You pay the utilities. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, just to get somebody in there to get something started, um, you know, in a retail shop. One of them we put in, um, similar to what Becky talked about, but it was sort of a indoor type flea market where each individual uh, person rented um, so much per square foot um, that they could show uh, their goods that they had to sell. Um, and that was in about a 10,000 square foot building um, in that one. And it's clear full. There's over over 30 vendors in that building um, mm. taking up that space. Um, I guess that would be uh, my suggestion. Um, you know, if the buildings, are, these buildings that we had were, were all good, you know, had good roofs on them, the bones were all good. Um, so that's what that uh, my experience on that. Okay, great. And, um, yeah, there's also this problem of this, this person that might not be interested in, in making improvements to the building. Becky, anything to add to this? This is kind of a tricky question. Yeah, and I'm going to give kind of a tricky answer. Um, there's actually a community in that downtown right now, and it may be icky, but it's still a community and there's still people. Yeah. So mm -hmm. maybe maybe it's time to build some bridges and, and reach out and just listen to the people who are downtown already. As As distasteful as it may seem, these are people. This is their community. Mm. Great, great advice. Um, from uh, Susan from South Carolina is interested in what one or two takeaways from the heart and soul process were most beneficial about your community revitalization efforts. Uh, Joe and Patrick have been a part of this, so Joe, quickly uh, a, a takeaway from how the heart and soul process benefited this revitalization. Well, that's a great, great question, Susan, and uh, you know this is still a work in progress for us. But one of the takeaways uh, were the relationships that we've built, um, not just among the Hispanic communities that we talked to, but through all members throughout our um, community, that we've built different relationships with each of them. Um, and also, when we did our network analysis, and you got to know more about our community itself, and the inner workings and all the different programs and businesses and, you know, what the school was doing. And, you know, those are the two biggest things, I think. And it really pulled the community members together because they all wanted to be a part of it and they all wanted to be involved and they all wanted to learn more. So those are the two biggest, the building the relationships 
and working with your network analysis and uh, your community members in growing your your town. Terrific. Uh, Patrick, anything to add to that about how the heart and soul process helped you with revitalization? Uh, just real quickly, and, and Joe covered a lot of it, there, there aren't any shortcuts. This is a process that you need to go through. And, and the, 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 the process of reaching out to people wherever they are, um, of having fun, of focusing on the 20% that I talked about earlier, um, going through that exercise is what actually builds the muscle memory so that your community can, can thrive. I think there's a lot of fallacies in community redevelopment that um, there's going to be some big fix, and you know if just X, Y, and Z fall into place, then we're going to be good. It's, it's messier than that. It is more challenging than that. And the results um, of having gone through um, that type of intensive um, searching, whether it's you soul-searching yourself um, for your right career and, and the right path for your family, or whether it's a large community um, soul-searching to figure out what's most important, um, that, that exercise is, is what lasts. Right. And, and while I've got you, just skipping ahead one, uh, because you're, you're very much a part of this, similarities and differences between the Main Street approach and heart and soul, how, how do they complement each other? How are they similar or different? Sure. So we, we um, actually presented um, at the National Main Street Conference in Milwaukee last year on this um, specifically. And, you know, the, the name of the session, the breakout session, was um, how to use um, – heart and soul to supercharge your Main Street program, and, and really I see it as as that. So if you're familiar with the Main Street program, one of the tenants, uh, legs of the stool, is about organization and volunteerism, and um, so I think that there are, uh, heart and soul is an approach, and it's an approach that can be applied in a lot of different ways to whatever challenge your community might be facing, and so... I see the Main Street program as being, and your organization around that, as being um, a conduit to um, to apply that approach. And an organization that, if it's healthy um, in your community, um, can help to, uh, to to bring this idea to to your town. Okay. We are almost out of time, so um, hopefully things like uh, how to bring the internet uh, to your town. Um, Patrick was asked a specific questions about uh, how, to, how to talk to the bank. Maybe he'll go in there and, and address some of those questions specifically. I love the tipping point for each of you. So hopefully our guests will go in and answer some of these questions we haven't gotten to, and including three actions most effective to starting a local company. I bet Becky has a lot of great answers to that. I'm going to offer them each um, kind of a final question. I mean, that, that might be what she um, offers us. But um, just a last thought from our guests about what early steps people can take to encourage small businesses in a small town. So, Becky, why don't we begin with you with some final thoughts? Well, if we want three actions that are most effective to starting a local company, I would run three tests and find out. That's, those are the three actions I would take. My closing thought is whether you're trying to start a business or you have a new project that you want to start or you just want to change the shape of your community, change its trajectory, don't wait for perfect conditions for that big launch to make that huge leap up to going. Start testing your idea now. Test it through booths. Test it through temporary events. Hold a one-night thing. Share some space with another business. Figure out a way to share some assets. Start asking this one question. How could we test that out right now at a much smaller scale. Awesome. Thank you, Becky. And Joe, your advice? Well, we've learned so much from uh, a lot of these uh, businesses that um, people are working right out of their houses um, and working on um, basically sort of what Becky had said, um, setting up these little pop-up shops. Um, you know, they could, you know, set up whether it's in your library, um, you know, the banks, you know, set up on the street corners, you know, try things like that. Um, you have to, you have to, have, there are going to be some risk, but you can minimize your risk uh, by starting out small and just trying something, you know, um, other than sitting back and waiting for something to come to you. Be, you know, um, 
go out go out after it. Um, do do your research and uh, you know have some confidence. Awesome. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Joe and Patrick. Uh, yeah, just final thoughts. You know, I think it's it's much sexier to think about bringing businesses to town and all that we can do, especially when you're facing many vacancies. I think I'd encourage folks before you do that to put yourself in the shoes of your existing businesses and recognize that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, to use an over overused saying. Um, but really uh, communicate well with those folks. See what would complement their businesses. Build from strength. And um, and then it's a matter of, like Joe said, getting out of your office, getting out there, meeting as many new people, smiling more, being pleasant, focusing on the positive rather than the negative. We've got enough negative in our uh, in our political environment and in our communities that um, the more we can be a beacon of sunshine, the more we're going to attract the folks who we uh, want to have in our communities. Awesome. Thank you so much, Patrick. So I want to thank all three of you for your wisdom. Becky McCray, thanks for joining us with your terrific examples. It was great to have you on board. Thank you very much. And thank you, Joe Watson, for your inspiring stories. Hey, thank you, Fran. And finally, Patrick Wright, thank you for all your insights. It was great to have you here. It's always a pleasure. And thank you all for joining us on our call today. Please take just a moment to fill out a very brief survey about this call by clicking on the link at the top of the Google Doc in the announcements section so we can make adjustments or enhancements to uh, make, it, make it all right for you. A podcast of this call in the Google Doc call notes will be emailed around and posted online in the next few days. Please add your thoughts and comments. I think well, let's make this as lively as possible and get your wisdom on board on that Google Doc before we send it out. We hope you join us for our next Orton Family Foundation event on Thursday, November 17th. It's a conference call in collaboration with the Citizens Institute on Rural Design and will focus on regional partnerships. So mark your calendar. Thank you all for participating. We hope you walk away inspired by our guest stories of great economic development successes. For all of us at the Orton Family Foundation. I'm Franz Stoddard. Hope to see you next time. Bye-bye.